Thanks, Marcy. We've been in 1 John for a few weeks, and I'll do some quick review. Well, not that quick, some review. John's purpose in writing his letter is that we would live with certainty. And this certainty should increase our humility, our joy, our purpose, our resilience in hard times. Because we're not certain because we are good or smart. We're certain because God's revealed himself to us. And this certainty, John writes, grows as we focus on Christ, who he is. But as you live your life growing in Christ's character and love, John says, don't hold your breath waiting for applause. Expect to be sometimes hated in return. And this can be surprising. So John writes, don't be surprised. It's surprising when you show love, when you try to respect others, when you hold your convictions with kindness and you're hated or mocked in return. And you're not going to be hated because of the results of this kind of life. The results of this kind of life are going to be love and humility and kindness and respect. The hate or the mockery is going to come because of the implications of this kind of life. It won't be because of the morality of Christ or the love of Christ that you show that people hate. Those things are fine. It's going to be the truth test the exclusive claims of Christ that will cause the the trouble. You actually believe this stuff about Jesus being Lord. Yeah, well then what does that say about my life? Well, what it says is you're wasting your life, you're missing life itself because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus' lordship is a challenge to power and to control. It's a challenge to autonomy apart from God. The Soviets feared faith because it was a threat to power as did Rome, as does China, controlling governments, even controlling husbands and wives, moms and dads, you name it. Jesus is a threat to human power. Inner rings that maintain their power by outsiders wanting in and keeping them out. If Jesus is Lord, you're a threat to these inner rings. And these inner rings happen on middle school playgrounds, high school, college campuses, workplace. If you don't bow the knee to anyone except Jesus, then you're a threat to these inner rings. Daniel was loved and admired when he was excelling in public service, when God gave him wisdom, and when his faith empowered discipline. But when he, when he refused to bow to anyone except God, he was a threat. So Jesus' Lord gives lie to all other ways of life. David Paulson was a brilliant Christian counselor. He had wide impact on the lives of many key leaders and the church as a whole. He studied at Harvard in the 60s. It was a turbulent time in American history. He dabbled in a number of worldviews as he admitted he was running from Christ. And he had several worldview-shaking experiences, most of them revolving around near-death or close-to-death experiences. He suicides around him. He was in a car where he saw the man's eyes before this car struck the man and killed him. And then I'll tell you one of these, um, I'll read one of these experiences that caused him to question his life purpose. He said, I sat at my grandfather's bedside after he had a serious stroke. He was rummaging through his achievements, relationships, aspirations, and travels. He was searching for something that retained meaning, something he could hold on to, something that he could tell me mattered in life. But everything he mentioned seemed to crumble before his eyes as he spoke. In the end, all he could say was that life is more than money, and all he could do was break down and weep. After saying goodbye, I sat on the steps outside the hospital and wept too. Now, the story didn't end for Paulson there. He came to Christ, and he lived and died with great purpose. And as I read that, I couldn't help but contrasting that with my experience in July, where my father, who traveled and achieved much, was laying on his deathbed saying, Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God. 
Such a contrast. To claim that Jesus is Lord is to make the claim that all other ways of living and dying are without ultimate meaning. And people don't want to hear this, especially when they're living their lives as they want to live them. And so it's no wonder that the world apart from Christ will not applaud you when you say Jesus is Lord. And the primary way the world will show hate in our culture, as opposed to the places Marcy was talking about, where the opposition can be physical harm, here it's going to be most likely mockery. You'll be regarded as stupid in your high schools or middle schools or across the street on campus or naive or outdated or mean-spirited or even dangerous. And the way Christians are going to be tempted to respond in our culture is to go along to get along, to focus on the love of Christ, not the exclusive lordship claims of Christ, because that's not controversial. The claims of Christ, the John's truth test, this is where the controversy is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, the nice guy, is fine. Jesus, the one and only Lord of heaven and earth, is not fine. But Jesus was absolute in his claims. He would have never been killed for being a nice guy, preaching love for others. He was killed because he said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. He was claiming to be God. And he said to people, you want to follow me, leave everything and follow me. And if we dabble in lordship, which is an oxymoron, if we dabble in lordship, we're no threat. If we're nice people getting nicer in the name of Jesus, we're no threat. If we crown Jesus as Lord and we actually live under his lordship, this is going to be problematic for the world in opposition to God. And anyone who says, well, all religions are essentially the same is ignorant of the claims of most religions and they are being dismissive of the beliefs of people in these religions. They're not the same. What people believe is vastly different. And the gospel's not all roads lead to one. It is there's only one way, Jesus, and all other roads are dead end. And historically, some in the church have become embarrassed by the exclusive claims of the gospel. God became a human, a baby in a manger. You actually believe that? I mean, come on, Bruce, you're a judge. You believe that? You believe the one who made the universe wore a diaper? Well, we don't believe that there were pampers in the first century, but yeah, we believe that. We actually do. God in human flesh died to pay for our sins. That sounds barbaric. It's been called cosmic child abuse. If you say that, you don't understand what happened. Christ rose from the dead. Really? I mean, we have cars and planes and computers. You really believe he rose from the dead? Well, I use a computer every week. I drive a car. I don't know what that has to do with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Theologians and church leaders, Christians of all kinds, have sometimes, many have not, but some have become embarrassed by the claims of Christ. And so they say, well, let's focus on his lifestyle. What if we believe that we'll just be nice like Jesus? You know, Jesus the nice guy, but not Jesus the Lord. How about that? And the world will say, well, I suppose so, but just don't bring that Jesus is Lord stuff back out here in public again. That's just crazy. Jesus lived as he did because he's Lord of heaven and earth. In our new member class, I'll sometimes use this example of a, of a factory and talk about how what we believe determines what we do. Our processes equals who we're becoming. We want to become full-time followers of Christ. And so sometimes people will say, well, I like what I see in terms of people changing, following Christ imperfectly, but trying to, to live a single-story life. But I don't know if I buy into what you believe or the things that you do. And I say, look, belief plus behavior equals who we're becoming. 
We train for godliness to become like Christ. We love others as Christ loved us because we believe Christ is who he said he is. And it's no wonder that when churches have gutted the truth of Christ from their theology, they're one generation from deleting faith from their kids' lives. So why would I try to be holy when I can do whatever I want? What does a, what does a first century nice guy have to do with my life? Nothing. Why would I love people I don't like or don't like me? That's just dumb. Why would I do that? Why would I sacrifice my own good now when I'm just going to die anyway? No, I'm going to get mine now. The truth of the gospel is not that we're folks gathered on Sunday, nice people trying to get nicer, but Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He has made you. You're made for him. It's destined for all people to die and then face judgment. You're empty because you've rejected Christ. You search for meaning apart from him has left you devastated. And without the reality of Jesus as Lord of our lives, without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we're not going to have the ongoing desire or the power to live a life like Christ or a life of sacrificial love for others. And so for John, all three of these tests hang together. The truth test, the moral test, the love test. And the truth test, who is Christ, is foundational. So John's going to circle back around to it. Everything hangs on this one thing, who is Jesus? Now before I read 1 John 4, remember John's readers had been confused by the claims of some false teachers with their theological innovations. And as we saw last week, John focuses over and over on the truth that was revealed through Jesus, preached by the apostles. Those were the ones with direct contact with the Lord he'd commissioned. And he's writing with the goal of certainty so his friends would live a life that corresponds to certainty. The life that corresponds to certainty is not arrogance, but faith and hope and resilience and obedience and love. And this certainty depends on the truth of who Christ is as revealed by Christ himself to the apostles. 1 John 4, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we have John's description of the problem. There are a lot of false prophets teaching what's not true. In chapter 3, he said that God has given us his spirit, but now we hear there are other spirits active in the world. Don't believe everything you hear, even if it sounds kind of super spiritual. Then we have John's prescription for the solution to the problem. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. How do we do this? He says, this is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. This is the doctrinal test, the truth test. In chapter 5, he's going to again, again combine all three tests. But here he's focusing narrowly on the truth test, which is foundational. If we don't hold fast to the teaching of who Jesus is, as taught by the apostles, then all is lost. So again, we have the description of the problem, false teachers and their teaching. We have the prescription of the solution, test the spirits. Now, don't make this weird. Test the spirits. Ooh, is that like hold a seance? Spirit, we test you in the name of Jesus. This is the, the truth test. Is this what are the truth claims being made here? Now, there are going to be times when you might encounter someone who is demonized. I have. And the truth test can be very overt, confronting these demons. But usually it's not going to be overt. It's going to be, what are they saying about Christ, who he is? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is not just the factual statement of the deity of Christ. I mean, demons recognize who Jesus is in Mark 3. 
This is a statement of faith in Christ as Lord. It's what's factually true and then what's actually true. The fact is he is the Lord. What needs to be actually true is he is my Lord. So the word John uses here matter in our understanding of this. Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. Jesus is the incarnate in human flesh, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, God. He is the long-promised and awaited Savior of the world. So this is how you know what's from God, and then the opposite is true. Every spirit or spokesperson that does not confess Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh is not of God. So behind the theological truth claims that every human makes, there's a spirit. It's not just demonized people. It's everyday people walking around who don't even know it. If they're making false claims about Christ, they're being animated by the enemy. They don't even know it. Not necessarily bad people. So John is dividing the world into two camps. And he's not being divisive. He's being descriptive. Humanity is, in fact, divided. John's black and white on this. In chapter 3, he took this two-camp approach to the social and the moral test. He said those who are children of God and then those who are children of the devil, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever doesn't love his brother is not of God. So people are often unwittingly living in the realm of the enemy if they're not actively obeying God and loving others. And again, it's this lack of ambiguity. It's this clarity that's the reason the world's going to hate the person who says Jesus is the Christ. Christ says absolutely he's the only way to God. He is the line dividing humanity. So John writes there are two sources of truth claims about Jesus, one from God and all others are from the enemy. They're not from God. And again, don't think of it like here's these, these great people and here's these bad people. There's a whole bunch of people who are good people who are unwittingly pawns of the enemy because they're declaring things about Christ that aren't true. Bill Maher, and I hate to give him credibility by mentioning him, him in here, but he's a good example of this. He's a comedian turned expert on everything. He is, and this is not derogatory, this is his own admission. He's an immoral man. He rejects everything out of hand related to faith in God. But when he speaks against Christ and Christians, which he does often, he's unaware that he's experiencing what he doesn't believe in. He's experiencing the demonic, the supernatural. He's speaking for the enemy. And when people hear him wax eloquent against Christians and Christ, they're listening to the spirit of the Antichrist. And I'm not saying he is the Antichrist. He doesn't deserve that much credit. But Trace preached on what John means by Antichrist, plural, a couple of weeks ago. For John, everyone who doesn't proclaim Jesus as Lord, but says he's anything else, is an anti and against Christ. They are, whether they know it or not, at that point, a mouthpiece for the enemy. And again, this is not derogatory, this is descriptive. It's a simple fact. So in the last three verses of this passage, John lays out the three characters in this drama. And he calls them you, who are the Christians he's writing to, they, the false teachers, and then we, the authoritative apostles, with himself as their representative. So let me read that to you. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So you see it? You've got you. He's talking to his readers. You're from God, and you've overcome them, overcome the false teachers. And the false teachers had failed to deceive them. The church was hanging in there in their faith. They were these false teachers 
who back in chapter 2, he said they left us because they never were actually a part of us. Now look at verses 5 and 6. The false teachers, they had formed their own echo chamber. They're talking to one another. They're making stuff up, declaring it as if it's true. Or maybe they're getting stuff directly from demonic spirits and then proclaiming it like it's true. Like Joseph Smith and the Mormons who got this message from this demonic message, but he presents it like it's from God. We, the apostles, spoke the authoritative gospel that they received from Jesus. This is not pitting one set of human opinions against the other. Jesus said in John 5, if someone comes in his own name and you accept him. So people are coming and saying, hey, I, know, I got a new truth. I got this truth. Jesus said, you accept it. But I'm the one the scriptures themselves speak of. So this is the lies of the enemy spoken through false prophets. Again, not necessarily people with bad motives or evil people. They're people sometimes who are, who are unwitting dupes of the enemy versus the truth of the gospel given by Christ to the apostles. On September 11th, the Israel, Israeli military chief of staff gave a speech at a ceremony marking the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And he said that Israel must be on his guard now more than ever. And after his speech was given, he was condemned for causing panic and dissent in the government. This very year, Israel told, told, Egypt told Israel something big is coming, and they ignored him. And I read this week that it's called a classic example of the feedback loop that reinforces our prejudice and blinds us to the real threats that we face. And the world, apart from God, has operated with its own perpetual feedback loop. John said they're from the world, they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. So the world has its own stories of what's ultimately real, what's our purpose, what's our problem, what's the solution to our problem, what's our destiny. And so humans make stuff up, or they hear this from demonic spirits, they promote it, they believe it, they try to live it, and it fails. Along comes the next and the next. And you can see this in the flow of biblical history. You can see it in the flow of the rise and fall of nations. I've not, I, well, I've seen the fall of some nations, like the Soviet Union, but I've seen the fall of families and individuals who get in this feedback loop. They believe this, and they try to live it, and it ends up being destructive. The enemy uses all this for his advantage. So John, speaking as a representative of the apostles, wrote, We are from God. And this is not arrogance. He's not saying, hey, we're from God. We're special. He's like, we have received the gift of truth from God. We speak for him. Jesus commissioned us. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. And so the gospel is given by the apostles is the truth of God. This truth doesn't change. There's no feedback loop here. It's not humans talking to one another. It's God has revealed himself to us. Christ as God became man to bring us peace with God. This is the truth of the gospel, and there'll be no innovations in this. Now, there's always going to be the need to do the hard work to live it out in our own time and place. You have to figure out what's the gospel look like in middle school, high school, as a teacher, at Cessna, maybe in a home where there's dissension or people don't like you. Our friends overseas got to figure out how do you live this out in our time and place? That part's always going to be difficult, but there's never going to be the need for a new and improved gospel. And some people are embarrassed by claims of certainty. It can feel unkind or arrogant. I mean, how can we believe we're right and others are wrong? Now, we absolutely should be embarrassed by arrogance. I was embarrassed this last week by my own arrogance. I just shake my head. Terry, you're so dumb. 
How could you be arrogant? We should be embarrassed by that. We should repent of our lack of kindness, but we should never be embarrassed by certainty, which is a gift from God. We're certain because of God's grace, not our own wisdom or goodness. And everyone, when it comes down to it, is at this moment, whatever moment this is, is living with some kind of certainty. They may believe you cannot be certain. So at that moment, they're living in a certainty of their own uncertainty. Even people who I've known who lay in bed in despair and can't, give up, can't get up. They lay there because you can't know anything for certain. So they say, I'm not going to decide anything. To avoid making a decision is a decision. You can't get around this. It is the fact that God exists and he's revealed himself to it. It's the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, the Savior of the world. And there are many ways for people to believe, but there's only one right way regarding Jesus the Messiah. This is not arrogance. John says this is fact. And he wants us to live lives of humble certainty. You say, great, I don't have that. It's okay, let's talk about it. Why, why might you be missing certainty? And when, when difficulties come, everybody has their foundations shook. But that doesn't mean the foundation won't hold. A loss of confidence in the gospel is never because of new data. It's not because of some new evidence. Yeah, but Terry, what about all these people who believe differently? I, I met a friend who believes this, and they're a nice person. Yeah, that's not new data. That's just new experience for you. There have always been people believing lots of things. What about all the suffering out there, or my suffering? That's new data against God. No, I wept last night when I read about Gaza. These are good questions. They're not new. But Jesus addressed them in the first century. None of this is new data. We have new experiences with this. But you're still left with the choice. Is Jesus who he says he is and who he showed himself to be? And what will I do about it? So by all means, don't be afraid of doubts, but you don't have to believe them. Doubts about the gospel are untrue because the gospel's true. So you should doubt those doubts. And John's given us three keys in this letter, three tests, three ways to grow certainty. The truth test. Believe Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth the rightful Lord of your life. This is factually true. Make it actually true. The moral test, train to be godly. Sin undermines certainty. When we're living in ongoing unrepentant sin, we're not going to have certainty. So John said, and this is my paraphrase, mess up, fess up, move on. And the social test, you got to get out of your mind and into your life. you got to go experience God as you share the gospel, as you invest love in other people, Get out of yourself into the lives of people. It all begins, though, with who is Jesus. In John chapter 6, some people skeptical of Jesus ask him, so what, what must we do to do the works that God requires? So what does God want from us? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent, me. To believe Jesus is the Christ, the Lord. This is foundational, and everything else follows from this. Let's pray together. We're going to spend some extended time in worship, and as we get ready for that, I want you to talk about God. Talk, talk to God about your, your certainty or your lack of certainty, the causes of that. Just talk to Him, listen to Him, be honest with Him.